So we're kicking off this series called Advent Conspiracy, and uh, you know we're going to take four weeks to to really focus on what is Advent, what it means to be a church that uh, kind of reflects on Advent, and that's fine and dandy if you know what Advent is. Um, I grew up in a church where we didn't do Advent. Uh, my family never went through the liturgical process of Advent, and so uh, all I knew of Advent was there was a little calendar. It had little boxes, and each one had a little door, and you opened it up, and you got a little gift, like a chocolate or a trinket or something. Uh, but that's really all I knew of Advent. So before I get into today's topic of Advent, which is worship fully, I want to take just a step back and just explain what Advent is. Um, so Advent, in its general dictionary sense, is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. Uh, so any, like when King David would come in back into Jerusalem after war, that would be Advent, right? The king is returning. Uh, there would be excitement around it. You know, he's a notable person. Uh, there's celebration. You know, usually there were parades and people were celebrating, throwing flowers and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so I believe that Christ, his coming, would probably be the biggest Advent, right? Probably the most important person, the most important event. Our whole calendar system is based off this day, right? The coming of Christ. And so capital A Advent as a church, uh, I believe is this. It's recognizing and celebrating the coming of Christ. Okay? In a very simple, simple, simplistic uh, definition. But there's a problem with that is because there's two comings of Christ. Right? There's the first one where he came as a babe. Uh, you know, grew in wisdom and stature before God and men, uh, began his public ministry and for three, three and a half years, walked this earth, uh, you know, friend of sinners, ministering to people. Uh, then he was led to the cross where he was crucified uh, for the transgressions of our sins. Uh, and from that, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, right? That was the first coming. But there's also another coming, and that's the one that we look towards to, right? Where he comes as the king of kings, the lord of lords, and establishes his righteousness uh, and makes all things right. And so when we celebrate Advent, there's two sides of it because there's two comings. And I think as we get into the Christmas season, we heavily lean on that first coming, and we kind of forget about that second part, right, where he comes back. And so one catechism describes Advent very beautifully. It says this, When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for his second coming. By celebrating the per, uh, precursor's birth and martyrdom, the church unites herself to his desire. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so during this Advent season, I believe that should be our heart and positioning as a church. He must increase, I must decrease. Uh, it's a time to prostrate ourselves before our Savior and recognize who he is and who we are in him. Um, so as we kick off our season of Advent here at the Hills Church, we're going to dive into the Christmas story, okay? Uh, and we're going to learn how we can worship fully. So part of the series is worship fully. We're going to learn how to spend less, give more. Love all, and this first one is worship fully. But in order to worship fully, I think we have to fully understand who we are worshiping, right? So if I know a piece of Jesus, that's the only aspect I'm going to be able to worship, 
right? If I have a limited view, a siloed view of who Jesus is, and I don't get the broad picture of the fullness of who he is and all his glory and his Christness and his Messiahship, then I'm going to miss being able to worship fully who he is, right? So we're going we're to take some time to kind of unpack that a little bit, to get a full picture of who Jesus is. And I'd like to ask you a question that's asked in a popular Christmas song. Do you see what I see? All right, so we're going to get into this. So let's jump into Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read the account of the Christmas story. But instead of putting the scripture up here for you guys to read along, we're going to do things a little different. I'm going to have you close your eyes, and let's see if you can see with your ears today and not just with your eyes. Okay, so he has, who has ears, let him hear. And I'm going to read this, and as I read the scripture from Luke chapter 2, I want you to kind of picture the scene as it unfolds, okay? So Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And then there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks of sheep at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger and when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had, told, had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And that's Luke 4 through 20, chapter 2. So as I was reading this, what did you see? Was it something like this? Right? This is our typical Christmas image of the birth of Christ, right? A glowing baby in a cave. <laughs> right? I don't know why all these pictures have Jesus glowing. Uh, you know, our front yard, you know, nativity scenes, there's baby glowing Jesus. Uh, it reminds me of a glow worm when I was a kid, you know? <laughs> you snuggle up to that guy and he's like glowing, your face is all shining. Um, So I don't know what triggered in the Renaissance era that said we should paint Jesus as a glowing baby. Uh, Because if he had been glowing, I think the angels would have mentioned that to the shepherds, right? Go to Bethlehem, look for the cave, and find the glowing baby. (laughs) You got the right one, right? Uh, But this is our traditional thought of the scene of Christmas, right? There's Jesus, a baby. Uh, Apparently, he didn't cry. I don't know. He didn't have poopy diapers. Uh, Anyone who ever had a baby, like the picture we see is not typical of what you think of a baby, right? Uh, we have this picturesque view of what that scene was like. 
but in our minds, when we think Christmas, what do we think? Baby Jesus, right? So, um, with uh, the glowing error aside, this is kind of the light that we see Jesus in, right? Pun intended. Um, and they get worse, so don't worry. But we see baby Jesus. It's this meek, mild baby Jesus. Uh, and for the most part, as an adult, things don't change much in our view of him, right? So he grows up, and now we see Christ as the surfer, suffering servant, right? He's meek. He's mild. He's friends of sinners, uh, you know, the friend of tax collectors. Uh, he goes around, you know, healing people, forgiving them. And there's a few little instances where he gets a little riled up, right? We see him in the temple once with a whip, throwing over uh, the money-changing tables, uh, he gets in the Pharisees' faces a couple of times. But for the most part, we kind of picture him as meek and mild, right? Uh, not passive in a sense of like he's weak and can't do anything, but he's very peaceful, right? He's the prince of peace come to this earth. Um, and so we have this picture of him. And so in the first coming of Christ, we see the Son of God uh, in the flesh here on earth, uh, coming here as a newborn babe, He's the Messiah, the Lamb of God, coming in all humility. He's beaten, he's flogged, he's ridiculed, crucified on our behalf for the remission of sins, uh, and then raised from the dead. And now he's seated on the right hand of the Father, and now we see him as intercessor, intermediary, savior, uh, firstborn of the dead, the faithful witness of God. Um, and so for a lot of people, that's kind of where our image of Jesus stops, right? But we rarely, and I think very rarely, think of Jesus like this, right? Why don't we see Jesus painted like this more often? And I think it's awesome that it took a graffiti artist to give us this picture of Jesus. Uh, we don't see Jesus as strength, as power, right? When you think of Christmas, do you think of Jesus as king, do you think of him as this powerful figure that comes in to eradicate evil? No. We think of him as this meek, mild little baby. But I want to tell you that this is the same Jesus. Right? This is the same Jesus. Um, in the second coming, we see Jesus as the Christ returning in all his glory. Right? King of kings, Lord of lords, righteous judge of the ages, lion of Judah, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Right? Uh, if you, you, we see Jesus coming as this warrior king coming back to earth. And when you read Revelation 19, you see a whole other side of Jesus. Right? And I want to take a minute to read that. So once again, I'm going to read. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture the Jesus that Revelation 19 describes. Okay. says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. Not quite the baby picture here. A little different glowing. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. 
He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Quite a different picture, right? I love that he's got a tattoo on his thigh, right? <laughs> King of Kings, I don't know if it's like down one, down the other, like King of Kings, Lord of Lords, or it's just like wrapped around like a band, I don't know. But it's written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't see meek and mild Jesus anymore in this picture, do we? But it's the same Jesus, right? And I don't think Jesus became a different Jesus to be baby Jesus, right? I don't think first coming Jesus had to give up being second coming Jesus. Jesus is always Jesus, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can't compartmentalize. Whew, too many syllables. Um, But we can't compartmentalize Jesus into these categories when we see him in different states of his existence in our presence, right? And I want to show you that. So, he's both. He didn't set aside second coming Jesus to be first coming Jesus. While he was baby Jesus, he was warrior Jesus, okay? Thank you, baby Jesus. While he was meek and mild Jesus, he was quick to forgive Jesus, and he was also judge Jesus. He was and is and will always altogether be Jesus. Uh, In the Chronicles of Narnia, we reference that book a lot at this church. It's a good book. You should read it. Um, But in the book, in the story, Aslan is a metaphor for Christ. And I want to give you a quote from the book. And this is Mr. Beaver talking to Susan. And again, if you haven't read the book, Mr. Beaver is an actual beaver. Uh, You'll have to read it to understand it. But he says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? (laughs) Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I think in our minds, we tend to lean towards safe Jesus. We want a safe Jesus. We don't want a Jesus that would lead us into something we're not ready for. We don't want a Jesus to test our faith to see if he can increase us in pressing us into a place of trusting him more, right? We don't want the Jesus that is filled with the Holy Spirit that actually was the one that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days and nights. We want a safe, contained Jesus, a baby in a manger Jesus. But I'm telling you, that baby's not as safe as we think that baby is, (laughs) That baby is an explosive pack of dynamite, (laughs) and I want to show you that as well. So we're going to look at another side of the Christmas story that maybe you guys, some of you have never read, never heard before, Uh, but this is almost a tradition at our house and how we kind of interpret the Christmas story. So as a part of our tradition, I want to share that with you, and we're going to read from Revelation chapter 12. And again, I want to read this, and I want you to picture what's going on in this scene, okay? A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. 
The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness to place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So maybe our nativity scene instead of baby glowing Jesus should look something more like this. It's funny, there's a a house in Stapleton, we were pulling out of King Supers uh, off of MLK, and uh, they have a big Christmas dragon on their patio. And I'm like, I'm sure they didn't get that from Revelation 12, though, because he's like, has a candy cane. And I was like, uh, but at our, <laughs> at our house, there's a Christmas dragon. Uh, not a good dragon, uh, but he's in the story. And we have this picture right, of Christmas Day, the birth of Jesus, as this peaceful, tranquil event. But if we look behind the scenes, we can see a a deeper story unfolding. And I'm not going to even pretend like I understand what all Revelation 12 is saying. Like, I didn't get enough theological receptors in this gray matter to to comprehend everything that's going on in there and, and, and what all the symbolism or whatever that is going on. But what I do gather from it is that there is more going on that night when Jesus came. Uh, On the day that he came to earth, God is man, as baby Jesus, he was declaring war on sin and death. As warrior Jesus. That on that day, whatever thought of victory that the devil imagined that he had a chance of obtaining was being threatened by the very presence of God here on earth. And when meek and mild Jesus went to the cross and stripped away the power of the great accuser of the brethren, he rose from the dead in all his glorious power, and he defeated the power of sin over man and annihilated death in the grave. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting, of sin is de- the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot was going on that day behind the scenes. And we, I don't begin to understand it all, but I do know that Jesus was the same in that manger when he came the first time as he will be when he comes the second time. He is Jesus. He is worthy And he deserves to be fully worshipped. Do you see what I see?
Amen. So when the shepherds saw this non-glowing baby Jesus in a manger, I don't think that's all they saw. In their hearts, they knew all the prophecies of the Messiah King. They knew what was foretold of the king that would come, who would bring righteousness and justice to the earth, who would bring hope to all the nations, uh, who would reign in complete righteousness, and who would silence their enemy once and for all. So, now that we have a better picture of who Jesus is, I think we can learn what it means to truly worship him. Uh, Let's look back at the story and see how the shepherds teach us to worship fully. Um, I didn't go to seminary or Bible college, so forgive me if I'm not preaching correctly. Uh, But someone told me that you had to have five points to a sermon, so we're going to get to five points. How about that? Um, And these aren't completely scripted in my notes, so pray for Brandy as she's trying to keep up with the slides. Uh, Because I may go anywhere and everywhere with this. All right. So, verse 15, we're going to see how the shepherds teach us to worship this Christ, this Jesus, who they went to go see in in Bethlehem. It says in verse 15, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So, the first point I want to make about worshiping fully or fully, fully entering into worship, is they believed, right? They believed what God had told them. And so to worship fully, we have to worship in faith. Full worship has to be done in faith. That means that when my day didn't go quite as well as I thought it would, I can still worship him. Why? Because he hasn't changed, right? When there's sickness in my body, I can pray for healing And I may not feel physically like getting up and worshiping or giving him glory in that moment. In faith, I can say, you are my healer, right? I'm going to worship you despite all this stuff that's going on, despite all the mess that the enemy may be accusing me of or throwing at me at this moment. It doesn't matter right now because in faith, I know that you're still on the throne. I still know you're good. I still know your eye is on me, that I'm not walking through this alone, that in faith, you are here with me. And I don't have to worry about this today. Amen? Also from verse 15, we get the second point, is they acted. Full worship requires some activity on your part. It's not passive, right? Uh, They didn't go, oh, that's awesome news. Let's go back to shoveling sheep manure. Um, (laughs) Right? They said, let's go see this, right? If God said it, let's believe it, and then let's do something about it. And so when we worship fully, it's, it's very active. It's not passive, right? And I'm not saying you have to run around with a tambourine. If you want to, that's awesome. I'd love to see that one day in here. Uh, or a big flag. You know, you got those guys. Amazing. I love it. Uh, but it does take something inside of you to say, God, I want to worship you. Right? If you're waiting for something to happen that's going to cause you to internally just burst into worship, probably not going to happen. Right? There has to be this intentional effort on your part to say, you know what, despite everything that's going on, I want to worship. And so the shepherds, they're like, yeah, I heard the word of God, now let's go. They acted on it. So verse 16 brings our third point. It says, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. The third point is they left everything behind. 
right? So full worship is not distracted, it's very focused. They didn't go, hey, let's take all of our sheep with us and meander through the streets of Jerusalem, you know, down the alleyways, whatever it was, with all of our sheep, and let's just hope none of them get lost, uh, and we'll go see the baby. No, they left all behind, right? The sheep can wait, right? And this was their livelihood, right? This, is, this wasn't just a hobby, like, hey, we like sheep a lot. Like, <laughs> I don't think anybody likes sheep that much. Um, but they left it behind, and so they put their full focus on pursuing the Messiah. And so when we enter fully into worship, we can't be distracted. Like, I can't sit there and go, what are we having for lunch today after service? You know, uh, what's, on, you know what's my to-do? What's going on at work? And those things will come, right? I mean, I don't know how many times I've tried to worship, and immediately all these thoughts of, oh, i got to do this Monday, you know? And I don't know if it's the enemy or if it's just my mind spinning, you know, whatever it is. But sometimes you got to shake that stuff off. Yeah, you know, I want to focus on Jesus right now. And in all these points I'm making, there is such grace. Right? This is not a checklist of like, well, I'm not doing this, so I can't worship fully. No, but I think this is something that we need to embrace is as we try to enter into his presence and worship him fully, just the, like, almost like the, the scaffolding analogy that Matt makes all the time. Um, it's a scaffolding, right, so that we can make our way into a place of full worship. Uh, also from this verse, we get point number four, is again, they left all behind because full worship is sacrificial. There's days where I don't want to worship, right? You're in a bad mood, work was not fun, kids are yelling, you know, your wife keeps pointing at your pudgy belly or whatever it is. I, that doesn't happen in my house, right? I threw you under the bus. <laughs> She's like, thanks. Uh, but there's things that just, you're not in a state of worship, right? Like there's emotions at play. There's things that go on, stress, whatever it is. And sometimes you have to go, you know what? I just got to worship, right? Maybe you're sick. That's okay. Jesus, I'm going to worship you because you are my healer, right? Stuffy nose, sore throat. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you're amazing, Right? And sometimes we, we tend to like to worship when things are going our way. And it's really hard to worship when they're not. But if you read the Psalms, you see a, a man, David, in every aspect. When his enemies were surrounding him and he started complaining about it, what would he do? He'd all of a sudden break out into worship. Right? He'd be like, oh, my enemies are all around me. Where are you, God? Oh, God, but you're holy. You're good. <laughs> you're, so, you're so amazing, right? You are just and so I think we can learn from David because, I mean, if anybody knew a little bit about worship, it was probably David. And I'm never suggesting you dance till your clothes fall off in this church. Um, but you can dance. I love when Andy dances, and I'm not trying to call you out, buddy, but uh, it's going to lead into our next point. But I love when you dance because in the next point, 17, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but worship is contagious. When you look at 17, it says, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about them, about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So they couldn't keep it inside, right? And as they told and everybody saw the excitement and the zeal these shepherds had about telling them about baby Jesus, warrior Jesus, uh, it was contagious. And so to my point with Andy, I love seeing him because if you've ever seen in the back, he's dancing and you can't help but want to worship. 
right? When you see someone fully engaged in worship and pouring their heart out before the Lord, you can't help but just want to join, right? It stirs something up inside of me that says, oh, yes, Jesus, you are worthy, right? Uh, and so, one, worship is done in faith. Two, worship is active to fully worship. Uh, it's focused, not distracted. Worship, fully worshiping is sacrificial, and fully worshiping is contagious. And I think as a church in this Advent season, if we can put all the distractions that the world says is the Christmas season and fully worship our Savior, I think that will set the tone, set our hearts in a place for what God wants to do coming into this next year. And I'm not saying presents, Christmas trees, you know, family, all, and all these things are great, right? We're not saying that they're bad. Buying presents for your kids, do it. Bless them, right? But when that becomes the focus, when that becomes the central stress, <laughs> the central theme of this season, uh, we miss the mark. And so I think Advent is there as a liturgical practice of the church to get us back on track, right? And so I'm thankful for it. So as we enter into this holiday season, let's worship Jesus fully. Uh, he's worthy of our full worship. Um, let's try to see this season as something deeper than, and more meaning, meaningful than maybe we have in the past. And I think if we can do that, God will get the glory. And uh, we'll receive the benefits from him getting the glory. Because um, wherever he's lifted up, he draws men unto him. And uh, that's what we're about. Like, I, I want, if Jesus is the reason for the season, I don't know why the church lies, likes things that rhyme so much. Uh, but if he's the reason for the season, and we go around saying that, but they don't see it in us, then we're just feeding the hypocrisy view that they have of the church. But if they can look at a church that says, wow, we're celebrating Jesus, and they see that in our lives, then I think we can be faithful witnesses in light and darkness. So...